From the Catholic Diocese of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation, this is the Prairie Rome Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Bergwald, and welcome to this special edition of Prairie Rome Companion. In this episode, we'll hear, hear part two of Dr. Joel Barstad's presentation, Handing on the Faith and Family and Culture, at a recent Faith for Life event in the Diocese of Sioux Falls. Enjoy the presentation. Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, is reported to have said, I don't know whether it was in uh, a letter or one of his works somewhere, but he says the question, and he's writing in the middle of the 19th century, so the 1860s and after, he says the question for our time is whether an educated man can believe that Jesus was God. The reason that he, he raised that question is that he was, he was part of a class, an intellectual class, in Russia that was quickly losing the traditional faith of Russia, abandoning orthodoxy and taking up the various ideological programs of Western Europe for the liberation of man. In 1860 we have the liberation of the serfs and so we have this big step forward in, in, uh, in a new world for Russia. Now one of the voices, another novelist that you may know about is Leo Tolstoy. Um, now he he returned in the end to a kind of Christianity, but it was a kind of Christianity that was somewhat eviscerated. Um, I don't want to talk a lot about that. What I do want to talk about is how he lost his faith, his original faith, in the first place. He has written a, a curious little um, kind of autobiography of faith called A Confession, and he talks about how he lost his faith. So I want to read you a couple paragraphs from that. My lapse from faith occurred, as is usual, among people on our level of education. In most cases, I think it happens thus. A man lives, like everybody else, on the basis of principles, not merely having nothing in common with religious doctrine, but generally opposed to it. Religious doctrine does not play a part in life. In intercourse with others, it never is encountered. And in a man's own life, he never has to reckon with it. Religious doctrine is professed far and away from life and independently of it. If it is encountered, it is only as an external phenomenon disconnected from life. Then as now, it was and is quite impossible to judge by a man's life and conduct whether he is a believer or not. If there be a difference between a man who publicly professes orthodoxy and one who denies it, the difference is not in favor of the former. Then, as now, the public profession and confession of orthodoxy was chiefly met with among people who were dull and cruel and who considered themselves very important. Ability, honesty, reliability, good nature, and moral conduct were more often met with among unbelievers. He goes on, he tells a story of a friend of his and the, the moment at which he stopped believing. He was out on a hunting trip with his father and his brothers and he was a young man, late teens, and at night in the, in, the, in the hunting lodge he knelt down to say his prayers and his older brother looked at him from his bed and said, oh, you still do that? And he said he never did it again. Just never did it. Not because his brother put a lot of pressure on it, but because suddenly it didn't matter whether he did it or not. 
Tolstoy talks about how um, in his young man, he, I think this is, yeah, he, um, one of his aunts thought that what he really needed to help his career, he needed to have an affair with a woman of a little higher class than, than, uh, than he had so that he'd kind of not be such a clout okay, or lout. And he's, then he looks back on those, those years. I mean, he's a nobleman, comes from a noble family in, in Russia, was given a lot of latitude, obviously, from what you're going to hear. I cannot think of those years without horror, loathing, and heartache. I killed men in war and challenged men to duels in order to kill them. I lost at cards, consumed the labor of the peasants, sentenced them to punishments, lived loosely, and deceived people. Lying, robbery, adultery of all kinds, Drunkenness, violence, murder. There was no crime I did not commit. And in spite of that, people praised my conduct and my contemporaries considered and considered me to be a comparatively moral man. Now, God save us from living in such a, such a time that we could say of such a person that he's a comparatively moral man. My, my point here is that what we have in Tolstoy I think is a paradigm of how people lose their faith. And what is it? It's in part because the people around them don't take it seriously. Okay? The people that teach it to them do not take it seriously. Now what do we mean by taking it seriously? When I'm, when I'm uh, educating my, my children, what am I doing? Well, I'm trying to introduce them to the nature of reality, how it works, what's important in it, the values, who's in charge, how to, how to move through it. But there's a lot of little stuff that I'm also conveying to them. Um, I liked Mike's examples of the music and what his father did. Um, I, in my own small way, I mean, when I cook pancakes on Saturday mornings, I like to listen to Dvorak, so at least they've heard some classical music. Um, actually, my wife is, it does a better job of kind of handing on that, that sort of thing, playing music for them. They still prefer the Goo Goo Dolls and Bare Naked Ladies and uh, all kinds of other bands um, to Mozart, but, but at least we've handed something on. And that's what a tradition is. It's a handing on. It's the faith, what we believe, that we're handing on. But it's more than that, too. We're handing on an awful lot to a kid. Father Giussani, in, in a book on education, gives the image of putting things in a backpack, filling up a kid's backpack. Um, just like you see the kids, I don't know if they do it here, but in Colorado they have uh, wheelies. The kids have to carry their back, their backpacks are so heavy with their books that they have wheelies just like you see in airports for to, to get to school with their backpacks. Um, so we're filling up their backpacks with, with stuff. Now hopefully we're doing something more than that. that we're not just filling up their backpacks with stuff, but we're doing it in a particular way. We're doing it by example, by giving them a lived reality that we're not just dropping them off at the church door, but we're going in with them. That we pass on the prayers, not by giving them a book, but by praying with them. Okay? They're seeing the faith lived in front of them. They're receiving it as, 
has a concrete thing that they can look at and they can judge and they can feel, they can participate in, and so on. But at a certain point, at a certain point, their relationship to their backpack changes. I mean, it's amazing to, it's amazing to watch this was, happen. I mean, my little family, part of the reason my little family is still the little family and why they're such, they're, they're my source of great joy, um, is that they still, they love their backpack and they, they like all the things in it and they're fairly teachable and um, uh, they cry over their math and things like that, but you know, that's to be expected. But they still are willing to receive from me. At a certain point, however, they get tired of carrying this big backpack and they ask themselves, do I need all this stuff? Do I really need all this stuff? So they go through the process of unpacking their backpack and looking at each item and deciding whether they need it or not. Uh, does the rosary mean anything to me? What about Sunday Mass? Um, what about Dvorak? Okay, I can live without Dvorak, they say. Or, um, they're going through that. Now, this is in some ways the most critical moment in education. It's the most critical moment in a parent's relationship with their child. What is our job after we've filled the backpack, after we've tried to live a tradition in front of them? Our job is to help them evaluate the stuff in the backpack. Now, I'm going to use a word uh, a lot. The word is judgment. Now, there are kind of two main ways in which, as Catholics, we use that term. Judgment, well, maybe three. Judgment is the big bad thing that happens at the end of the world, right? Where everything, we're judged and um, things are set right. It's that kind of judgment which we are not supposed to do to one another. We're not supposed to ever give up on one another. We're not supposed to turn to the other and say, that person is lost. There's no hope for that person. Um, we're not supposed to judge in that sense. Okay. I don't want to talk about that kind of judgment. That's not, that's, um, that's not where I'm at. When I talk about judgment, I'm talking about it in a much simpler, more neutral sense. That is, it's a certain kind of sentence that we use. We sit down at dinner, we fill up our plates, we take a few bites, and I look up and I say, oh, this ham is good. Okay. I have made a judgment. I've connected two things, this ham and good. How do I know that the ham is good? What is the basis for my making that judgment, for declaring this ham to be good? Or let's take the example of a, of a peach or a pear. Okay. I can remember um, there was one morning, uh, summer morning, the, one of the neighbors came back from the western slope of Colorado and they had a small U-Haul trailer behind their car and that trailer was filled with boxes of peaches and pears from the western slope. 
And we stood out there in the street, and I remember he gave me one of these, these peaches, and I bit into that peach, and that was the best peach I have ever eaten. Okay. So now, whenever I eat a peach, um, I always say, oh, that peach was pretty good. <laughs> I rarely find a peach that is as good as that one. Okay. Now, what is, what's happening there? What's happening there is when I say peach is good, I'm using a criterion, a measuring stick. I'm measuring this peach that I'm now eating against that peach I remember. Now, maybe that peach has gotten better in time, I don't, I don't know, but, but still, I'm using it and I call that a criterion, a judgment stick, a ruler, a measure, a standard. Okay. So we always judge by a standard. So what would be my standard or my criterion for judging that a ham is good? Well, hams I've eaten in the past, maybe just the last one I can remember. And oh yeah, this is a much better ham than the last one. Or, this is as good, or whatever. That's what I mean by judgment. When we make a judgment about something using some kind of criterion. What kind of criterion do we want our kids to be using when they start going through their backpacks? When they pull out an item and say, this music is good, or this prayer is bad, or this person Aunt Sarah or Aunt Molly or whoever um, was not nice. Okay, we're, we're, they're, they're evaluating, they're judging the things that we've given them. We want to use the heart, the, that thing that Mike talked about. We want to teach them how to compare it with their hearts. We don't want to teach them how to compare it. Well, that's not true. We do. How to compare it with job prospects. I mean, I said I never would do that, but I do find that having a job is important and wanting to have a job is, is a good thing for kids to, to have. I just never thought I'd have to argue that with them. But, um, but what, how am I going to argue with a kid who, who prefers to, to sit at home um, rather than go out and look for work? How am I going to argue with him that looking for work is good? How do I get him to share my judgment that that's good? Well, the only way I'm going to manage is if I can connect it with those deep needs of his heart that we talked about. That he has some desire for his life that, and I'm able to connect getting a job to those desires. Okay. Now, this process of learning how to judge is extremely fragile. Extremely fragile. It is perhaps the most fragile thing in all of our relationships. Because most of the time, the criteria by which we judge whether a thing is good, those standards that we're given are images that we're not even aware that we've received. We, we have images of the people around us. We have images coming from television. We have images coming through media in various, in various forms. Tolstoy didn't have to worry about MTV or, or internet um, radio or, or movies or those sorts of things. 
but he still, his life was suffused by images of people around him for whom the faith was not a criterion of judgment. That the heart was not a criterion of judgment. In fact, what happens in, in, in his later life is that Tolstoy discovers uh, precisely what Mike was pointing at, that dy dynamic of suddenly you realize that all this dueling and, and uh, tough guy stuff and all these affairs don't make me happy. What next? What, what will make me happy? So Tolstoy at least found some way to be able to judge things with his, with his heart, beginning that, that process. But it's not always easy to, uh, to do that. And I've watched my kids struggle with, with that. What if, you, what if you want something? You realize that you, what Mike said about the heart being opened way up. And you suddenly want more than you could ever have imagined wanting something. The thing that comes, the dark side of that, is a fear. Almost inevitably, we become afraid. Can I get it? If I get it, will it be taken away? Is it worth the trouble? And so the danger is, is they'll say, well, it's very beautiful, but, uh, but I have something that's nearly as good, or at least it's, more it's as distracting, that's close at hand. Why don't I make myself comfortable with that? Okay. I'll be satisfied with less. What they need from us in that moment is to say, aren't you betraying yourself? Aren't you betraying your heart? I was, um, when I, f I, was, I taught at Colorado College for a, a few years after I finished graduate school. It's an undergraduate school. <clears throat> and there was this, uh, this uh, Portuguese priest, Father Joao. And uh, oh, the Portuguese, they are an amazing people. I don't know how many times he said that to me. And, but there was one time when he found out that I was going to be working with college students, he said, he says, listen, he said, when you work with them, if they, are, uh, if they are into social justice and social action, then you go. You go with them, you go on the marches, you do everything with them, but afterwards you say, what does it mean? He says, if they, oh, they like to party, um, then you, you party with them. You, drink a beers, they like to smoke dope. Well, I said, don't, don't smoke the dope. Tell them that the doctor forbids it. But afterward, ask them, what does it mean? If they are pious and they want to say rosaries, go ahead, say the rosary with them. But afterwards, ask them, what does it mean? And then he said, there's one other thing you have to do. You have to say, you have to tell them, you have to witness to the fact that Christ is the meaning. Even, he said, if you don't believe it really in that moment. Okay. We have to help them judge against the heart, but also bear witness from our own experience to the reason that we think life is meaningful. We have to do two things. We have to, to get them used to thinking in terms of of their own needs and desires, but we have to give them hope that those desires will be met. And we have to give that hope a name. 
at least we can give that hope a name if we've met Christ in that way as the answer to our own desires. The thing that our children need from us in, that, in those moments is consistency in judging by the criteria of faith, by the criteria of the heart, and by the criteria of Christ. Interestingly enough, they're able to understand our moral failings when we get angry and yell at them, and so on, or other other problems that they see us falling into. If dad falls into a funk for a few months because he's so worried about work or, or whatever. You know, they can forgive that. But what they need to see from me all along the way is that I'm judging my life according to the criterion of faith. That when I fail, I judge my behavior according to the gospel. That's much more important than whether my behavior actually matches the gospel. The fact that they see me measuring my behavior according to the gospel. That's what they need to see. They have plenty of experience of failing. They know how it happens. What they want is they want to know how to start again. And they want to know what to hang on to. They want to, they want to, to, to know how to go on. And, and if they see us at least consistently judging our lives by the criterion of faith, then we've given them something to hang on to. In fact, if we don't do that, then we've robbed them of something. Uh, Father Giussani says in, in, um, in his book on education, he says, for a parent to say a hundred times a day in front of his kids, I made a mistake, said, is never a lie, or needn't be a lie. I don't, I don't know how many mistakes you make in a day if it's only 95, you know. Um, it's not a lie to say I made a mistake. But if I point to something and I say, there's the truth, but then I never use it as a criterion for judging my life, then I've just said that that's a lie. I've just contradicted myself. If I tell my kids in Sunday school that life is about loving God and loving neighbors, and I teach them when they're young how to care about people, but when they get older, I don't let those criteria be judgments in what they study or what sort of careers they plan for, but I'm using some other kind of judgment, then, or some other kind of criterion for those judgments, then I've just under, undermined everything I've tried to give them. That's what happened, that's what happened to Tolstoy. He would, lived in a culture where everyone was baptized, everyone was catechized. Everyone went to liturgy, learned up until a certain age, and then at a certain age, he, he talks about a brother who um, was very pious, and then at a certain age, people said, well, you've got to get serious about life. I mean, you're not supposed to take that religion stuff too seriously. And then a whole different set of criteria come into place. And so that's how people lose their faith.
Again, we need to hold up two things for them. We need to hold up in front of them a standard of behavior, a standard by which they can judge their lives, a sinless standard. But we also have to be able to give them examples of mercy. I mean, that example of my son, Nick, Dad, don't do this to me. Um, I've got to be able to move on. I don't want to be a slave to my mistakes. Um, and the only way I'm going to do that is if you forgive me. Right. Um, the ultimate judgment on our life is mercy. That's what the cross in the, in the end means. That's what the resurrection means. There's this, um, this very long, uh, beautiful movie by Tarkovsky, Russian director. I don't expect any of you to watch it. Um, I only can watch it every few years. It's so long and so demanding. But it's about a medieval icon painter, um, Andrei Rublev. You've probably seen his icons. You just don't know his name goes with them. There's one of the, the Trinity, very, the three persons of the Trinity sitting around a table. They're very serene. It's a, it's a Russian icon. You've probably, you'll, you'll see it um, in the next week, maybe. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty common. There was one time when he was hired by a prince to paint a church, he and his team. But it came to a place in the church where, where um, the last judgment was be, to be portrayed. And Rublev went on strike. He kind of went into a funk and he went off and he wouldn't paint. And so his fellow painters came and said, Why, well, come on, we need to get this done. The prince is getting angry. He says, I will not frighten people. I do not want to frighten people. Then um, there's, a, there's a lot more story after that. But then at a certain point at the, the end of the, of the movie, you get, uh, a, you, after the drama of, of, of how it comes, at a certain point he stops painting icons altogether. And then at a certain point he takes it up again. And then, then at the very close of the film you get this panning across icons of Rublev, the ones that, are, that still are alive. And what I noticed in, in that scene, as it slowly looked at all those faces, that Rublev's icons always have this character that even when they look sad or even stern, in the end there's always mercy. And so mercy is always the last word. So in terms of our criteria, um, that, that finally is our, is our criteria by which we must judge things. In that sense, I think we can conclude this part by talking about how important it is that we teach our children how to confess their sins and ask for absolution. Um, the practice of the church of confession and absolution is precisely a moment where I allow my life to be judged by the standard of the gospel and the standard of mercy, by the law and by grace in the same moment. But that's not something that happens just at church. That's something that has been happening, we hope, in the very way in which we relate to our kids.
Okay, I want to take another um, break for you to write questions. And then uh, we'll gather again at a quarter till. Will that be enough? No, let's, that 20 till. So 10 minutes for questions. And then, uh, and then I'll do my, the third part of my talk. There'll be another break and then we'll have the question and answer with both Mike and I.